When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, you don't have to swing your arms when you walk, so why do you? Then, how to be more persuasive and influential. One way is with compliments. There are two ways to actually increase the benefits of a genuine compliment. One is to give it behind people's backs. Give it to somebody else who tells you. Then, what's in your basement or attic that could be worth money? And what you probably don't know about recycling, including what's not recyclable. So, plastic carryout bag, those shouldn't be in your curbside bins. They tend to clog the recycling machinery. And then a lot of the smaller things, like bottle caps that aren't attached to bottles or forks, they're really not going to make it through. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello there. Welcome to Something You Should Know. I was just reading, you know how on podcasts, including this one, you're often asked to subscribe. Well, now the industry is moving away from that term, which I really think is a good idea because the word subscribe implies money. When you subscribe to Netflix or you subscribe to a newspaper, you usually pay money. When you subscribe to a podcast, you don't. So now the new term that everyone's being encouraged to use is follow. So I hope you will follow this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. First up today, you know when you walk, you swing your arms. But think about it. It's not exactly necessary For example, if you're carrying something in your arms, no swing. 
So why do we swing our arms when we walk? Physical anthropology professor Thomas Grainer has a theory. He says it's a neurological leftover when we walked on all fours. He says that when quadrupeds walk, most of them do it with a contralateral gait, meaning right foot, left arm. It helps with balance at slower speeds. On the other hand, scientists in a University of Michigan study concluded that swinging our arms adds stability and that by not swinging your arms, you would use 12% more energy to walk the same distance. So you could burn more calories by not swinging your arms when you walk. You would just look really weird. And that is something you should know. Every day, you're trying to influence people. And actually, every day you are influencing people, whether you're trying to or not. People are always reading into and interpreting what you say, not just on a conscious level, but unconsciously as well. And while all that's going on, other people are influencing you in the same way. Influence and persuasion are topics that have been well-researched and studied, and probably the foremost authority on the subject anywhere in the world is Robert Cialdini. He wrote a landmark book on this topic back in the 80s, and it has just been updated and re-released. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Hey, Bob, welcome back to Something You Should Know. Hello to you, Mike. Good to be with you. So I think a good place to start is to very quickly run through the principles of influence. Yes. There are six universal principles, and I've now added a seventh. The first is reciprocity. People say yes to those who have given to them already, who have first provided a favor or uh, a gift of some sort. Um, So, for example, if people walked into a candy shop and received a small piece of chocolate as a greeting gift, they were 42% more likely to buy candy. Now, it wasn't that they were 42% more likely to buy chocolate because somehow they, they loved the chocolate they got. No, it was not what they had received. It was that they had received. So my recommendation is when you go into a situation where you want to be more influential, your first question should not be, who, who can help me here? Your first question should be, whom can I help here? Whose circumstances can I elevate or outcomes can I enhance? And they will want to do the same for you. There's a rule that says it. It's in every human culture. So that's the first principle. The next one is liking. People want to do business with people they like. And there are two simple things you can do to make that happen. One is find genuine similarities that exist between the two of you and then raise them to the surface. The other is to give genuine compliments that are deserved. And in both cases, people are more likely to say yes to us. Next principle is the principle of social proof. The one that says, one way we reduce our uncertainty about what we should do in a particular situation is look at what the people around us, like us, are doing there. So, for example, in a Beijing restaurant, if if managers put a little asterisk next to certain items on the menu, each one was increased in purchase by 13 to 20%. What did the asterisk stand for? It said, this is one of our most popular items. 
and each one became more popular for its popularity. So we look. So one thing we can do is give people honest evidence of other people moving in our direction, especially people like them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Talk about the principle of authority. Another way people can reduce the uncertainty they feel in a particular situation is look to see what the experts are saying. We would be fools of the influence process if we didn't include a testimonial from an acknowledged expert, someone who is registered as being an authority on the topic, before we send our message. That testimonial is gold. Next principle is the principle of scarcity. People want more of those things they can have less of. Next principle is the principle of commitment and consistency. People want to be consistent with what they've already said or done. So uh, in one study, uh, a restaurant owner was able to significantly reduce the percentage of no-shows at his restaurant, people who booked a table and then didn't show up for it. By changing what his receptionist said when she took a a booking by just two words, Previously, she said, please call if you have to change or cancel your reservation. He asked her to add the words, will you please call if you have to change? And no-shows dropped from 30% to 10% immediately because people had just made an active commitment. And then the final principle is unity, the idea that if a communicator can convince us that he or she is one of us, not just like us, but of us, shares an important social identity with us. All influence barriers come down. We want to give to people who share that identity. Let's take an example. A study done on a college campus. Uh, Researchers had a young woman asking students passing by to give a contribution to the United Way, and she was getting some um, con- some donations. But if she preceded the request with one sentence, she more than doubled contributions. The sentence was, I'm a student here too. And now two and a half times as many people gave. So those are the principles of persuasion What are some of the things that people think work to be persuasive that don't? One is determined by this question that I'm often asked. So which of these seven principles is the most powerful? Which is the one I should use that should be my favorite? And I answer that question by describing the outcome of a study that a colleague of mine did. He said he spent two years trying to find the single most effective persuasive approach. And I saw him at a conference a while ago. He caught me by the elbow. He said, Bob, I found it. The single most effective persuasive approach is not to have a single persuasive approach. That's a fool's game. To think that the same approach is going to work for every population, for every kind of situation, for every existing relationship you had or didn't have with somebody. No, that's not the way you do it. You 
you change your approach based on the circumstances of the situation. You know what I wonder is, if I know these principles of influence, am I less likely to be influenced by these principles of influence? You know, you shouldn't be, except when those principles are being used unethically, deceptively on you. I'll give you an example from my own experience. Uh, A while ago, I was in an electronics shop, and I was there for a different reason, but I saw a big screen TV on on sale, and I knew that it was a very highly rated one from Consumer Reports. So I was standing in front of it, and the salesperson came up to me and said, I see you're interested in this set at this price. It makes great sense to be interested in it, but I have to tell you, it's our last one. We don't have any more. And then he said, and I just got a call from a woman who said she might come down this afternoon uh, to buy it. Mike, I'm supposed to be the guru of influence. 20 minutes later, I'm wheeling out of the shop. No, (laughs) you fell for that? In my cart, because I'm as human as anybody. Now, here's why I think you were understandably amazed. Because I know about scarcity, I should try to resist it. No, if it was truly the last one at that price, I needed to know that. That salesperson was my ally in the process, not my adversary. Let's say he didn't tell me it was the last one. I went home to think about it, came back that evening, and he said, oh, sorry, uh, it sold. Uh, that was our last one. We didn't have any, and we don't have any more. I would have been outraged at the guy. What? It was your last one, and you didn't tell me about the true scarcity that existed? What's wrong with you, man? So the key is, was he telling me the truth? I went back the next day to find out, was there an empty spot on that shelf? Or had he just gone to the storeroom, got another one, and used this strategy on me, on the next person? And I did go back the next morning, and it was true. There was an empty spot. It was the last one. I went back to my office, and I wrote a very positive five-star review for that shop and that salesperson. So that's the key. I shouldn't want to resist these principles when I see them. If they're used honestly, they inform me into a purchase. You talk about an influence strategy that Amazon uses with its fulfillment employees where every year they offer their fulfillment employees $5,000 if they'll quit. Explain that. They give people an opportunity to quit, and they know that the the great majority, over 97%, choose not to quit. And it's the choice that they want. They want people to make that active choice for Amazon. Because when people commit themselves publicly and even under uh, conflicting situations, like, oh, I could get $5,000 if I could, and they choose not to, they become more committed to their job and their productivity goes up. 
That's really interesting. So, so they ask employees to quit and to tell them they'll pay them if they quit. And so, so they're, they have to basically say, no, I want to work here. Precisely right. And you know, Jeff Bezos, at the top of the memo that he sends to all those employees every year, says, here is an opportunity to make $5,000 if you quit quit. And I hope you won't. It's to get people to recognize that they have chosen to stay in the face of a $5,000 bonus to leave. I'm talking to Robert Cialdini. We're talking about influence and how it works, consciously and unconsciously. Robert is the author of a book that he wrote back in the 80s that has just been updated. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just... You know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin-D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Bob, I love this example of a question that McDonald's employees asked of their customers, and the question was, would you like to try a McFlurry dessert? And you say there were five words that were added to that question that increased sales by 55%. And those five words were... It's our most popular dessert. It's like the Chinese restaurant. It's our most popular dessert. And then people get off the fence as to decide whether they should have a dessert or not. 
We all have most popular models, most popular ideas, most popular features, most popular payment plans, right, that we can offer to people. If we just tell them so, that's a reason to stop dithering, get off the sidelines and into the game. I know I've heard, I I think it's pretty common knowledge that giving someone a compliment is is a good way to get them to see things your way, to go along with you. So from what you know about compliments, talk about how they work. What I found is there are two ways to actually increase the benefits of a genuine compliment. One is to give it behind people's backs. Give it to somebody else who tells you. You know what? Cialdini told me he thought you asked a brilliant question of him. You feel better about it than if I had said it to you because there's no ulterior motive involved. It's not like I'm trying to curry favor with you on online or on, on the air, right? Somebody else told you. So if your boss says something brilliant in a meeting, you can't raise your hand and say, boss, that was stunningly good. I, you, know, you can't say that. But you can say it to your boss's assistant during a p- coffee break or afterward. Right? The assistant will tell your boss because we know people want to be associated with good news in the eyes of their superiors. And you know what? After your boss hears that you thought this point was brilliant, your boss is going to love you for it. Second way you can increase the, the effect of a, a genuine compliment is give it to people as a way, give it as a way to increase the likelihood that they will perform the same action you want to see again. I've got a newspaper carrier. His name is Carl. He rolls by my house every morning, and he throws a newspaper out the window of his car that most of the time lands um, in the middle of the driveway so it doesn't get wet from the watering systems I have on both sides. He also, every year, includes a little envelope in in one of the newspapers around Christmas time with his uh, name and address on it. And I know what it's for. I'm supposed to send him a check as a tip for his service during the year. And I always do that. But this year, because of what I, the research I, I read on giving compliments that people want to live up to, right, I included a little note. Carl, uh, thank you for your conscientiousness at getting my newspaper in the center of the driveway so it doesn't get wet. In previous years, about 75% of the time he did that. This year so far, 100%. I know we've talked about reciprocity, that if you give somebody something, you're more likely to get something. But also, if you personalize the gift, that has even more power, right? A personalized gift is something special. You're giving something special to an individual. And the rule for reciprocity says, I have to give back to others what they have first given to me, which means they now stand ready to give me something special 
in return. Not just an ordinary positive response, but a special one. So that's why um, I have a, a colleague who says she was able to significantly reduce the uh, lag time from one of her customers. She puts together conferences and conventions. One of her customers is notorious for being late at paying his invoices. She learned that he is an art aficionado, especially of modern art. So now, with her invoice, she includes a postcard from her local art museum of a piece of modern art that they have in their collection. She says she now gets paid immediately because she's given him something personalized to his preferences. And she says all her colleagues are asking, how do you do this? This guy usually takes six months. She said, I haven't told anybody yet what I do, <laughs> but it's a personalization of, a, of, the, of the gift or favor she gives. And he does her something special in return. So you have such great examples, anecdotes of how influence works in real life. One, one more that illustrates the importance of one of these principles of influence that, that you talk about. So I got an email from um, a Boy Scout leader. And he said, I wonder if you can help me with this. Um, we, to, say, to, to raise money for the Boy Scout troop, we will uh, sell popcorn outside of supermarkets. They agreed to let us sell popcorn. As people come out, we ask them, would you like to buy some popcorn? It would help the Boy Scouts. Right? And we only get about 15% of the people are willing to do it. It makes sense. They, if they wanted popcorn, they would, have, they would have bought it in the, in the supermarket. They've already spent their budget. You know, they're not inclined to buy more popcorn. Right? And I said, you asked the wrong question first. Here's the question you should ask. Excuse me, do you support the Boy Scouts? If so, could you buy some of our popcorn? He says they now get over 50% compliance. You ask the right question. Focus them on something that they're committed to. They are committed to them, but they like the Boy Scouts, and they say, yes, I do like them. Then you say, would you like to buy some popcorn that would support us? This guy says, some of the people who don't buy the 50% who don't buy say, I don't want your popcorn, but here's, some, here's a contribution for the Boy Scouts. They don't even incur the cost of the popcorn. It is amazing. It is because it, 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 so much of this is under the radar, you know, and it's, it's so interesting to kind of shine a spotlight on it and see how this all works because it's all working all the time, whether we do it deliberately or not. Boy, you just hit a bullseye right there. It's working on us all the time. And we can use very small changes, like this one I just mentioned. What, what do you say first <laughs> right? when you ask for a favor? To harness this power that's working underneath the surface to drive human behavior. 
Yes, and, and it's so important that we all understand this because, as you say, this is what drives human behavior. It's what helps determine whether people do or don't do something. So it's really critical to understand these, these principles. Robert Cialdini has been my guest. He is author of the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And there's a link to his new revised version of that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Bob. Thank you. I appreciated uh, your questions because it told me you were prepared for this interview. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Recycling has become part of everyday life for most of us. You throw your trash away in one bin and you put your recyclables in another. And after the things that you recycle leave your house, what happens? Is everything really recycled into something else? Or does a lot of it end up in a landfill right alongside your garbage? What things that you may be putting in your recyclable bin are not really recyclable? All these questions are important for all of us to understand, and here with some expert insight into how recycling really works is Jenny Romer. She is an attorney and leading expert on single-use plastics, and she's author of a book called Can I Recycle This? A Guide to Better Recycling and How to Reduce Single-Use Plastics. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I like to think that the things I put in my recycle bin are, in fact, recycled into something else, but I know they're not all. What percentage of plastic, for example, is actually recycled? Well, only about 9% of plastics ever produced have been recycled. So we have a major problem with plastics recycling in the U.S. And what about the other things that we think we're recycling? The most valuable recyclables on the market right now uh, tend to be certain plastics, so uh, HDPE number two resin, which tends to be milk jugs uh, and kind of shampoo bottles, uh, followed by aluminum cans are very valuable and and cardboard boxes. So there are things that that there is a market for, meaning that there's a manufacturer who wants to buy those items after they've been collected and sorted and baled. But for a whole lot of other plastics, there really isn't someone on the other end who wants to buy to buy them most of the time. And so what I really get into is the logistics of, of how recycling machinery works. Once you put it in your bin and it goes to a recycling facility, how it gets sorted out, 
what problems can happen there, and then whether there's an end buyer who wants to purchase those items. So really looking at, at recycling in a different way. Yeah, well, isn't it true that a lot of the market for recyclables is gone, that China used to take a lot of it and now they don't, and a lot of it just ends up in the landfill anyway, and and in many ways we're kind of going through this exercise for not a whole lot of reason? I see it as a good thing that China has stopped taking a lot of our low-value plastics. Really, they put a contamination cap. They said, we'll only take plastics if there's only 0.5% contamination, which is kind of impossible in our current system. So essentially, they stopped taking all of our, our all of our low value plastics. And some places are still taking it, but those those other countries really don't even have the infrastructure that China had in the first place. And there were a lot of humanitarian and environmental concerns there. But I see it as a good thing that now we're kind of forced to talk about it uh, because before those plastics were being accepted. Um, and we weren't really talking about what happened next. So you, you've you mentioned um, pretty much exclusively plastic. What about paper? What about newspapers and cardboard and stuff like that? There still is a market for, for a lot of paper. Uh, it depends on exactly what paper you're talking about, but magazines, newspapers, cardboard, there is a market for that. Uh, a little bit less because China was taking that as well. But we do have a domestic uh, market for for that. And cardboard is interesting because it really fluctuates quite a bit. And so there's even a, so much of a cardboard can be so valuable that there has has been a problem with cardboard poaching because uh, re- because businesses would put cardboard out on the curb. And if the market value of cardboard was really high, then we'd see uh, people just renting trucks and going out and poaching cardboard. It's been a big problem. Uh, even in New York City, there were charges brought uh, for cardboard poaching. So, you know, some recyclables are very, very valuable and some aren't. So let's talk about what our responsibilities are when we put recyclables in the recycle bin. I mean, I, where I live, trash goes in one recyclables go in the other. I imagine they're sorted out somewhere else, the the plastic from the paper, from the glass. But, you know, then I hear things like, well, pizza boxes are not recyclable because the grease from the pizza basically ruins them, and you shouldn't put those in the recycle bin. I have a little graphic in my book about kind of how dirty can your pizza box be. Um, And one tip is a lot of the time, the grease from the pizza box will just be on the bottom part of the box. So you can rip off the top part of the box and put that in your recycling bin and then either put the the bottom part in compost if you have it or in the trash. So at least you're able to salvage some of the box. And so I think a question a lot of us have is like, how much good is this doing? I've I've heard people say that, you know, if if all of the recyclables ended up in the trash, we barely notice. It's such a small amount that's actually going anywhere and being actually recycled into something else that, yeah, this feels good and it's very environmental and it feel, makes us all feel good, but it isn't really doing very much. One thing that I really look at is the economics of it. So some plastic is worth almost $1,000 a ton on the commodities market. Other plastic is worth negative seventeen dollars, where meaning you have to pay some have to pay someone to take it away, and so having people you know go through all of the time and you know water usage to really wash out every little piece of plastic and put it in their bin 
if we know it's a plastic that doesn't have a market that isn't eventually going to be turned into another product, no, that's not worth it. But for the, pro- the plastics that are higher value, for the other materials that are higher value, uh, like aluminum cans, that's definitely worth putting in the recycling bin. I imagine there are a lot of things about the recycling business and how it works that that probably we should know that we don't know. And and since the name of this podcast is something you should know, uh, what else... <laughs> What else should we know about how recycling does and doesn't work? Yeah, one thing I like to look out for is when you're in a public place and you see a recycling bin that's lined with black plastic, uh, a lot of the time that means that it's not going to be recycled um, because a lot of because most recyclers won't open an opaque bag. So I think a lot of the time people will see, well, put something in the recycling bin and those are very unlikely to get recycled. I'd say almost never, but also when we're recycling or putting things into our bin, like we said, and um, if you put things in your bin, if you wish cycle something that isn't actually recyclable, it could cause a lot of problems there. So for a plastic carryout bag, those shouldn't be in your, in your curbside bins. Uh, they tend to clog the recycling machinery, get wrapped around other valuable items. So they contaminate the source, they clog the machinery, um, and the facilities have to pay to shut down the line and kind of cut out all the plastic films. People also like to recycle things like garden hoses and extension cords, and those are tanglers for the recycling facilities as well. And then a lot of the smaller things, like uh, really small bottle caps that aren't attached to bottles or forks and things like that, if you put them in their bin, they're really not going to make it through all that machinery. Well, wait a minute. You've just said a lot of things we need, <laughs> we need to go back and talk about. So yeah. the plastic bags from the takeout restaurant or, or, or maybe even the plastic bags from the supermarket, those are not recyclable? Uh, Well, if you look at the bottom of most of those bags, it'll have a little recycling symbol on it, but then next to it, it'll have what we call a qualified claim. So it'll say, you must bring this back to a participating grocery store to recycle. So there are some drop-off programs for for plastic films, but most people aren't going to do that. A lot of people just try to put them in their curbside bins, um, and say 97% of the communities in the U.S., do not accept plastic bags or plastic film for recycling. It's like I said, they're tanglers, they clog up their machinery. No one ever told me that. Well, I'm happy that I'm here with you today. (laughs) That's a big take home. But I bet if you asked 100 people, more than 90 of them would say, yeah, we we put those bags in the recyclable because they're plastic and plastic is recyclable. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing I really want a big take home to be is that plastic isn't just one thing and a lot of it isn't recyclable. So getting back to what you said, you said that if you put your recyclables like in a public place in a thing that is lined with a black bag, it won't get recycled. Why? What's the significance of the black bag? Uh, Because at most facilities, if they see a black bag, they are not going to want to open it. Recy- or waste management, recycling is a dirty business. 
and they want to limit their liability a lot of the time um, to not have their employees open these mysterious black opaque bags at recycling facilities. So who knows what's in them? Um, so a lot of jurisdictions will require either a clear bag or a tinted blue bag. Um, some a lot of places don't e- won't even accept bags at all. Waste management, which is the biggest hauler in the U.S has a new campaign where they aren't accepting bags. But sometimes you live in a, if you live in a jurisdiction like New York, where there really isn't room for for garbage cans or what we call toters, like the garbage cans with wheels. And so sometimes putting it in a clear bag is the only option. And I would distinguish the, the recycling bags, the bigger bags versus the carry out bags. It's a lot of the time when if, if you're if you have to use the bigger bags to put your recyclables in curbside, those will get opened up at the beginning of the sorting line, um, and those bags will probably just be thrown away. Uh, so most facilities are able to handle those. Those aren't actually being recycled most of the time, but they're being used to transport the recyclables. But a lot of the time, people will also kind of throw in all their carryout bags, thinking that those are going to get recycled, and they aren't. But not only are they not getting recycled, you say they, from what I understand you're saying, is they also just gum up the whole project. Yes, yes. They're tanglers. They clog up all the machinery. They cost municipal recyclers money because they're having to pay people to um, to take all of the, the, those little films out of the gears of the machinery. So one big take home is don't put those carryout bags in your bins. <laughs> And I know people, well, I've even sometimes done it where I have recyclables that, that maybe are, are wet or, or, or rinsed out and, and are still got, have a little water on them. I, I'll put them in a, a, a kitchen trash bag and put that in the recyclable bin, but sounds like that's not a good idea either. No, whenever you can have them just go into the bin without any bag, and uh, that's the most helpful thing that you can do. And you said, because I mean, every time we get takeout, if there's plastic forks, they go right in the recycle bin because, again, they're plastic, but you're saying they're too small to, to do any good. Yeah, there are two things with utensils. First is that they're small and kind of awkwardly shaped, and so they aren't going to make it through the, the facility. And then the second thing is that they're made out of a resin a type of plastic that's probably number five or number six, and they, those really don't have a, a buyer that's going to want to purchase them at the other end. So I would cons- I would put my uh, plastic utensils just straight into the trash and and not have them take that kind of long roundabout way to the landfill. But I would say that I want people to follow the guidance from their local jurisdiction. So you know, look at what your your jurisdiction accepts or doesn't accept and follow that guidance. But the bigger thing should be to try to avoid those utensils in the first place, especially if you're, if you're ordering in and you're at home and have utensils. And that's one thing we're trying to work on with policy as well is having it, having a more clear way to be able to tell the restaurant that you're ordering from whether you want utensils and, you know, if you want one fork, then being able to say that versus just getting a whole bag full of various things. You mentioned something a moment ago about, you know, whether, do, do you put on a bottle, do you put the cap back on before you recycle it? And I've always wondered about that because if, if you're, th- those are two different materials, so you would think you would want them separated. 
If it's a plastic bottle with a plastic cap, then definitely keep the cap on. Um, so if you have a water bottle and keep the cap on and put it in your bin. And then what will happen is that when it gets to the facility, if it's a bottle, it should be able to make it through and be sorted and bailed. And then when it's sold to the manufacturer, what they will do is shred all of that plastic and then they will do a float sink test. So the caps are generally made from number five plastic, that's P, uh, polypropylene, and that'll float to the top. And the, the body of the bottle is made from PET, number one plastic, and that'll sink. And so they'll be able to separate the two plastics that way. And one thing we haven't talked about that hasn't even come up in this conversation, but, but I remember when, you know, people talked a lot about recycling glass. Do we recycle glass? Yes, we recycle glass. There's one issue with glass, though, is that it's very heavy. Um, so if you're recycling glass, you really need to have a, a buyer locally um, that is going to reprocess it. And um, so that's one issue. So glass tends to have a little bit lower value on the commodities market just because of that transportation cost. But glass is inert. Uh, and so so it's, you know, I encourage people to use glass. And I would also encourage having taking advantage of any refill programs that are available in your area. So some places have uh, refillable glass bottles for milk available. Um, I wish I did in my area, but I don't right now. And that's one thing that glass is really great for. Is it true, though, that, that there has been kind of a fundamental shift here that, you know, in, in the early days of recycling and when China was taking our stuff, that, you know, recycling was a business that could make money because people paid for that. And now, in a lot of cases... People are being paid to take it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so municipal recycling facilities are really getting more involved in, in policy now. So we've seen that, you know, for a very long time, municipal recycling facilities made, or we call them MRFs, um, made money by recycling. They would take, you know, take all of our, all of our uh, materials from the blue bins sort them and then sell them on the commodities market. And for plastics, for most materials, they could get something for it. And so there's been really a fundamental shift from selling those commodities to having to pay to have them landfilled or incinerated or um, or, ship, or shipped for a much lower value. And so those facilities are are starting to talk about policy and starting to talk about having producers having manufacturers pay for the cost of recycling rather than having it just be um, paid for by taxpayers and ratepayers, just because it isn't necessarily a money-making um, money making proposition anymore, particularly for low-value plastics. I remember hearing someone speak on this topic some years ago. I can't remember his name, but he, he, was, a, he was a pretty well-respected expert, and he said something to the effect of, as much as recycling's a good thing, what's really filling up our landfills is not recyclables so much as it is construction and demolition debris, and that that is a problem that nobody's really tackling. Yeah, that's an issue. You know, I, I focus mostly on consumer side, um, what's put in the blue bins, but C&D, construction and demolition debris, is is a huge deal, a huge problem. And there are some places that are doing a really good job with it. San Francisco 
city of San Francisco in particular uh, has a program that really looks at, at reuse of a lot of the, of a lot of those materials. Um, but that's a whole, that's a whole other um, issue within waste management that really needs a lot of attention as well. So it sounds like what, what really has to happen to, to make this really work is that the, the stuff that gets recycled has to be made from the right stuff in the first place so that it can be recycled after it, the product has been used so that there is a market for it and then the cycle actually works. And right now the cycle is kind of broken. Exactly. So starting with those more sustainable, more recyclable materials in the first place is a huge part of the solution. So having you know consumers when they are at the market, knowing kind of what's recyclable and what's not um, is helpful, but that's not going to solve everything. Not, not everyone has the time or the energy to really pay attention to that. And we don't have a lot of choices right now when we're at the market. So having uh, corporations, having the manufacturers be responsible for developing more sustainable packaging is really where we need to go. So this, the plastic that we recycle or anything that we recycle, generally, if it does get recycled, it gets recycled into what? Bottles can be made into into other bottles. And otherwise, things kind of tend to be downcycled. So bottles can be made into other types of containers. Bottles can be, plastic bottles can be made into fleece sweaters or, or carpet. Um, but we really want to see recycling rather than downcycling. So having, being able to have that circular system where a bottle is made back into another bottle rather than downcycled into something that can't be recycled again. Um, but one other thing that we've been working on are post-consumer recycled content mandates. So in California, they passed a law last year that required that beverage containers have a certain amount of post-consumer recycled content meaning a certain amount of, of uh, bottles that have been put into a curbside bin and then made into a new bottle. And so that really creates end market demand for that material. Well, this has been really informative. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as somebody who's, you know, kind of in the know. I know what's going on, but there's a lot of things you've said that I had no idea about what to do and not do when it comes to recycling. So this has been great. My guest has been Jenny Romer. She's an attorney and expert on single-use plastics and author of the book, Can I Recycle This? A Guide to Better Recycling and How to Reduce Single-Use Plastics. There's a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. You never know what could be tucked away in your attic or basement that could be worth some money. So you might want to check. And here are some things to check for, according to Brian Kathanis, co-author of the book, Bet You Didn't Know That. Any coin dated before 1965, a quarter, a dime, or a half dollar, or a dollar coin. Those coins are made of almost all silver, and in today's market, they are worth several times more than their face value. Anything military, old documents, medals, Civil War discharge papers, or souvenirs brought back from a war, people collect these and they could bring in some decent cash. Historical autographs. If you have signatures from someone in history, they could be quite a find. 
The rarest historical autograph in U.S. history is from a guy named Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett signed the Declaration of Independence, but he died shortly after that in a duel. All of his papers were burned in a fire, and so his signature is very rare. So rare that someone paid $100,000 for it at auction. And that is something you should know. Word of mouth is how our audience grows, and you can help us out by telling someone you know about this podcast. Give them the link and tell them to listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.